Hello and welcome to the Mindful Family Business. My name is Russ Hayworth and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Martin Stepek. In each episode, we will be exploring and learning about the ancient teachings of mindfulness and how we can apply these to situations within our family business. We are also offering access to a program that takes what we speak about and applies it to your own family business. More details of that at the end of the show. But for now, take a breath, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, Martin. How are you today? Hi, Ross. I'm really, really well. Um, It happens to be one of those strange days in Scotland in terms of the weather where we've had the rain and the sunshine at the same time, then the hailstones, then just the sun, then just the rain. So a typical day here. Yeah, pretty standard day from what I've heard. (laughs) Um, The purpose of this episode is to introduce our audience to what it is that we are going to be talking about over the course of this podcast. And perhaps the best way to start is to... um, it is to start there and explain what it is we're trying to achieve, what we want to cover. Um, and I, I'm curious as to your thoughts and, and aims for what we're doing here. It's a great way to start, a great, great place to start. For me, this is always about the well-being and the fulfilment of people, individuals, people in a group like a family, people in a wider group like employees, Um, and team in a business or any organisation. And it's really about the the ability, or rather normally the inability, of us to be able to control our reactions to things. When we are just reactive all the time, it can cause most, maybe all of the problems that we face and make matters worse in many cases. Whereas if we are able to manage our own well-being which is and mind, which is what mindfulness ultimately is all about, then issues that are problematic can be resolved constructively. Problems that may have arisen don't arise at all because of skillful, wiser considerations and communication. And we gain greater clarity of thought about what it is we're all about what we're attempting and hoping to achieve, and that's business, family, individual level, and the use of moments, you know, the importance that all you ever have to do anything with your life is in the present moment. And if you can just capture enough of them and make the most of each of those, then everything else, all else being equal, tends to take care of itself. Fantastic. And... I think it would be beneficial during this episode just to introduce those in the audience who aren't familiar with um, who we are and and what we do as to why it's us that's doing this podcast, that's combining the worlds of mindfulness and family business. And, you know, from, from my perspective, my expertise lies in the family business side of things and I'm very curious and fascinated by 
the history and the um, teachings that mindfulness can bring. And so from from my perspective, I'm also um, benefiting hugely from the uh, the knowledge and, and experience that you're going to impart on the audience as, as well. But perhaps it would be good to give a background of, you know, how you came to find mindfulness. Did it find you, your journey from sort of day one to, to where we are, perhaps a, a whistle-stop tour of day one to, to where we are now um, and sort of give some background on it from that perspective. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think it's probably day one to about day 7,000 now. I was doing a wee <laughs> calculation in my head. So I was born into a family business, tried my best not to join the family business. Um, I failed in that endeavour, so I got sucked into it, drawn into it in my mid to late 20s. found it really enjoyable, but I come from a big family. I'm one of 10 children and all married, and we were in retail so we were very visible as a business to not just the public, but also to our own spouses and wider extended family, um, literally shop window experience. And I was starting to find that side of running the business increasingly stressful, um, having to answer questions at the weekend when we were going out for dinner with you know, my brother and his wife or my sister and her husband. Um, and you couldn't get away from the family's almost imposition, crossing the, the line into uh, sort of thoughts on business on the business. And I'd never faced stress before, um, and I found it incredibly tiring. And I also found I was trying to calibrate it in my head. And once I started becoming aware that this fatigue and this irritation. Um, and agitation was was in me now, which wasn't natural or didn't feel natural in me. And I worked out there's something in the weather and the wind um, aspects of climatology called the Beaufort scale, where you know you start with a gentle breeze all the way up to a hurricane. And I kind of created for myself the equivalent of that in terms of stress. And I thought that. Basically, each hour I was in the work in business in the workplace, I would get a level of stress. So I was going to work stress level zero, and because we were working long hours, I was going home stress level eleven. So it's going from a gentle breeze or no breeze to a hurricane in terms of stress, and it really felt like that. Um, I was cycling back from work to to and from work, and it took a little bit away from it, um, just the actual activity, but. I couldn't be a good husband. I couldn't be a good father with that level of fatigue and irritation in me. So I was looking to find various things. And of course, this is the 1980s um, into 90s. And basically, all the training and leadership courses. Very few of them mentioned well-being at all. Very few of them mentioned the mind, which is hugely ironic, given that it's the mind that makes all the decisions. So, And any that did was so shallow and what I would call kind of trashy American 
overtly commercial versions of it that they did no good to me. So by chance, I was in um, a bookshop in Glasgow. We were going on holiday and we all went in as a family to get some books just to, to tide us over on the plane or whatever. And out the corner of my eye, I saw a book about the Dalai Lama, um, bright orange, as you can imagine, or saffron colored. And to cut a long story short, I was there, skeptical about it, but I decided I'll grab a book about meditation or Buddhism. So I ended up with two books and a totally skeptical view. I just think this is going to be rubbish, but it might be interesting rubbish. Um, Mm -hmm. And it it hooked me straight away because it was the two books by chance had chosen were both very modern versions of what Buddhism was all about and modern versions of what the mind can do to be changed to a more useful and more positive um, tool of, of a human being. And from there, it was just hooked. So this was 1998, I think it was, so 24 years ago. I found it so useful, even learning it from a book, which isn't the way to learn it, um, that when I found out that Tibetan Buddhists were actually teaching in Motherwell, which is the town nearest to where I am, um, just two miles away, um, I went there with great trepidation um, to actually get a really a real guided meditation, something I'd never done before. Now at this stage, I'm about forty years old, you know, so it's it's not like I'm a, a wee kid trying to learn this, um, and it was astonishing. Just the for even with the talk was great about compassion, compassion beyond yourself and those you naturally care about. But when I was guiding, this was after hours, this was after work, so I was tired, and then the woman who was a a Buddhist nun guided me in a meditation, the first ever meditation I'd been guided in live. And I had never up to that point felt so peaceful. And I just thought, I don't care if this stuff's a lot of baloney, it works for me, I'm going to do it. So I started going to the weekly classes and then within six weeks I found out they had monthly residentials. So a weekend, once a month, and I started going to that. And I was going to purely for myself, my own well-being. Um, and, but after five years, six years of going there, they asked if I wanted to become a teacher of this. And I explained that I didn't believe in this about karma. I didn't believe about rebirth. Um, and they said, that's okay. You still need to teach it, but you can say you don't believe in it. And let's have a conversation. So that was a real eye-opener for me. You know, the tolerance and the openness and um, so I had to go away for a month um, from home, two weeks, 14 hours meditation a day. Basically, you wake up and that's all you do except for go to the toilet and go to um, to eat. And then followed by two weeks in silence um, on my own. No books, no pen, no paper, no music, nothing. Um, just to observe the mind and try and deal with it. And it was hard. Um, and at the end of that, they said, that's you now, a teacher of mind, of um, Buddhist philosophy, psychology, and ethics. And that's how I got there. How I then, within a year though, I'd already learned that there was a lot of scientific research going on in the background about aspects of Buddhist teaching, especially what's called mindfulness. And, you know, this was 
medical doctor, um, John Cabot-Zinn in Boston, um, neuroscientists, Rick Hansen, people like that in America who were really looking at this seriously, doing proper research, you know, um, blind testing, uh, control testing on it to see if this stuff worked. And the results were coming really positive. And that appealed to me more than the spiritual, religious side. And so I, I said to them, to the, the Buddhist group, can I do this on my own now? Uh, would, do you have any problems with that? And they said, no, go with a, you know, get our blessing for this. This is great. Um, it's just good that you can spread something that helps people. So I started that, and that would be about 2004, and been teaching it ever since. Um, and more importantly, I've been practicing it ever since, um, however imperfectly. Yeah. yeah. And I think part of the um, reason I'm excited about recording these um, episodes together uh, about this is um, as you mentioned there, you, you grew up into a family business and you have lived that experience. And it might um, perhaps be worthwhile just mentioning that we we met via um, the, the introduction to talk about mindfulness on, on a, another podcast. And subsequently, we have spent a lot of time recording the, the, the sort of the experience that you had going through that um, time within the family business and, and beyond and the impact that mindfulness and the teachings and learnings that you had about this fundamentally changed your life and impacted your life in a very positive way. And because there has now been more around the science and the neuroscience around it, it's it's this isn't just kind of woo-woo. Even if it was, it worked and it's fantastic, but it's not just that. There is the science behind it and there's much more recognition about it. And I think one of the elements, again, that, that excites me about it is this seems to be coming into focus now in the, you know, the 2020s, whereas actually its foundation is far, far older than perhaps a lot of people would think certainly from from my own experience the the teachings and the groundings and the the belief system behind it is far older than um the current sort of trends would would have you to believe and i think that's the really exciting element about what we're going to explore in these recordings together is that history and background um of um, mindfulness and, and beyond it's absolutely fascinating even if people aren't remotely interested in mindfulness per se um, the history of it is, is remarkable and it, it goes back two and a half thousand years to northern India and southern Nepal and that's where the person that became known as the Buddha um, was born and, and raised and so the legend goes he was the son of a king or a tribal king in that area and he Again, according to the stories, and you can never tell if it's two and a half thousand years old, how much is true, and especially if you become a, you know, known as almost like a semi-deity um, by your followers, they're not going to say he was just an ordinary guy down the street. So, um, <laughs> but anyway, this young guy apparently started to really query why there is so much suffering in the world. 
And, you know, the the story goes that he saw in succession, you know, a child newly born and the mother weakened by the birth. So as birth, he saw somebody who was very, very ill, so that's sickness. He saw someone really, really old, barely able to walk with a stick, ageing. And then he saw someone being carted off to the cemetery, and that's death. And so the the view is that there's so much pain and suffering and dissatisfaction and frustration in life. Can't we do something about it? Can we not escape from that in some way? And when he, he so he started going to all the various gurus and teachers of the time, and apparently over a five-year period, he learned a lot, but none of it really worked. <laughs> you know, maybe helped a little bit, like a, putting a plaster on a big wound. Yeah. And he was frustrated by this. And again, the story goes that he, out of frustration and desperation, is almost like a, the last straw or, or the last effort. He sat down in a, a village was back to a tree, put out a begging bowl so he wouldn't have to think about eating and drinking um, or food. And he closed his eyes and he thought to himself, I'm going to sit here until I work out why all this negativity and all this pain and all this dissatisfaction and frustration is popping up in my head and making me feel miserable. Um, and if I don't learn it, then I'm going to give this whole thing up. And apparently on the sixth day, having got all junk appearing in my mind, and bear in mind that I've done that for sort of a two-week period in my own as well, <laughs> the, the rubbish just comes up and you see it so clearly. So he did that and he get, he had this revelation of what he called Nibbana in Pali, Nirvana in Sanskrit, and what we know as enlightenment. But I think what he was really talking about looking at it now, looking back, is essentially he had learned through pure observation of his own mind in peace and quiet so he wouldn't get distracted by everything else, that the mind produces destructive things, unhelpful things, distracting things, but you can learn to notice it and not follow it. And if you can notice it and not follow it, you don't get caught up in the dissatisfaction. You don't get caught up in the moods or the ruminating or the regrets or the guilt or the resentment. But instead, you can stay calm and clear-minded. And so it's almost like a separation of two different parts of the brain. And we know this now from neuroscience. And, of course, that's a revelation because if you could do that all the time, you would never, quotation marks, suffer again, because you'd be able to deal with the reaction in the mind and move it to something con more contented, more peaceful. And so that's what happened. And this is a, a young guy, apparently, in his mid-30s, trying to learn this, getting a breakthrough about it. And the amazing thing is then he starts teaching people about this and um, people change their, transform their lives, make them happy, makes them be able to deal with things like grief and loss and pain, so, um, incredibly much better than they would normally have done. And then, of course, he lives till he's 80, apparently. So unlike, you know, say Jesus, you know, who had three years as a, a teacher, I mean, the Buddha had 50 years, 
and the Buddhist texts are like about 40 Bibles long, you know, <laughs> they're massive. Um, and so he then dies, and after he dies, then they, they kind of start to, they don't worship him, but they revere him as a teacher, and that then takes its own course, and it, it becomes much more ritualistic. But, but he wasn't like that. He was a, a sort of streetwise proto-psychologist, proto-social activist. He wanted to create communities that knew peace of mind. And that's an amazing thing for two and a half thousand years ago. And he nearly got it all right, you know, just pure, through pure insight, because that's what the, the neuroscience and that's what the, the psychological studies are now showing us. It's fascinating. And as I say, I'm really looking forward to um, our journey of discovery for me um, on uh, each of these episodes. And I think it'd be good to outline each of the episodes that follow will be looking at things from two perspectives. We'll be covering some of the sort of ancient teachings and lessons that we can take from mindfulness. And then because both of us have that family business um, background and expertise, is looking at that through the lens of what happens if this situation arises in a family business and how we can utilize mindfulness to perhaps lead to better outcomes, either individually or ideally collectively um, as well. Um, and our first uh, lesson is going to be on the first of the four noble truths, which I'm very much looking forward to um, talking to you about on the, the next episode. For the benefit of this introduction episode, is there anything further you want to sort of speak to our audience about to uh, entice them and convince them that this is the right podcast for them? Sure. I think the first thing is to, if you can, and it's good to be sceptical. Scepticism is a healthy state of mind, but scepticism is different from cynicism. To be sceptical means that you'll keep an open mind, but you want to know the evidence. And that's absolutely right. That should always be our view. Cynicism is basically saying, I don't believe you regardless of any evidence you produce, which is a form of stupidity. Um, <laughs> but further to that, you know, that when we start the actual subjects um, next time, the first one is all about this idea of suffering, you know, human dissatisfaction, frustration, mental lack of peace of mind. Now, that then transforms or transfers immediately into family business setting. Almost everything we learn about family business dynamics is about what are the problems? What are the issues? Why don't we have harmony? Why don't we have harmony within the family? Why don't things just resolve themselves? And a lot of that's to do with what's going on in each individual within that context mind. And that's where it is hugely helpful to people in real situations and incredibly practical and effective as a means of dealing with them. Fantastic. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this introductory discussion about what we have to bring you in future episodes. Uh, and importantly, we hope it helps you keep an open and healthy mind. Uh, and until next time, bye-bye.
It is our firm belief that it is healthy for your business, your family as a whole, and each individual involved to learn how to develop a fresh, more objective perspective of the situation each of you is in, so that clearer aims, hopes, and visions can be explored together in a positive, respectful, and constructive manner. Martin and I have created the Mindful Family Business Programme to help you with this. If you'd like to find out more about this, please head to familybusinesspartnership.com forward slash mindful for more information. Or you can email me, russ at familybusinesspartnership.com. We really hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you have, please feel free to share it with your family. And you can even leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, take care.